I just can't wait to be king. That is the song that little Simba, the lion cub, sings in The Lion King. And, you know, it's a song about how when he's king, everybody's going to have to do exactly what he tells them to, and he can do whatever he wants. Now, I don't want to be too much of a spoiler for those uh, that haven't yet seen The Lion King, but uh, Simba's going to have to learn the hard way that being a king is about more than that, at least being a true king. There's a lot about responsibility and servanthood and community in there as well. But can you really blame Simba for thinking that kings can do whatever they want, that to be a king means everybody has to do what you want them to for, I mean, his Uncle Scar, right? This is how Uncle Scar behaves as king. And if Simba were a human and studied human history, he would see that again and again in in human history, this is what the kings of the world do. They accrue power to themselves so that they can do what they want. They can fulfill their own ego trips. They can seek their own pleasure. We live in a world today, too, where we thought that we had graduated beyond monarchies in our world today, but we see as authoritarian dictatorships arise that we really haven't gotten beyond this whole concept as humans in fact, there's, there's a, a number of people that are uncomfortable with Christ the King Sunday for precisely this reason. They, they, they get nervous around king and kingdom language associated with Jesus. It, it feels too patriarchal, too colonial, like too oppressive, all sorts of things we don't want to associate with Jesus. So what are we doing here calling Jesus King? Well, one other thing, too, that's worth at least considering is that in the Bible, in the Bible, kings generally get a really bad rap, okay? The kings in the Bible are, not, are rarely ever good. And in fact, at one point in the Old Testament, the people of Israel early on are ruled by sort of the, 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 the tribal chieftains, but they, they want a king. And so they go to Samuel, the great prophet of the Lord, and they say, Samuel, we don't want these judges. We don't just want these tribal leaders. We want a king to rule over us. And Samuel says, well, you already have God. And the people say, no, 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 we need a king to be like other nations. And Samuel says, well, if you have a king, uh, this king is going to love power, and the king is going to tax you to take your sons and send them to war, to take your daughters for wives, marry foreign women, and lead you astray from the Lord. And the people say, we still want a king. And it turns out, you know what the king does? Every single thing that Samuel predicts that the king will do. Well, you might say, well, fine, that was the Old Testament, right? That was a long time ago. What about the New Testament? Maybe kings are better in the New Testament. Turns out the kings in the New Testament are no better. The first king we meet in the New Testament is King Herod. And Herod is so despicable that Herod, when learning about the birth of baby Jesus, goes and kills a bunch of children under two in the hopes to also kill Jesus. Right? He is a bad, nefarious, terrible, sinister human. Again, wherever you look in Scripture, there are, are bad kings. Yet, the New Testament is okay with calling Jesus a king. In fact, Jesus himself talks openly about the kingdom, the reign of God. And at the end of it all, finally at the very end in Revelation, we, we hear that Jesus is, in fact, the king of kings. 
So what's going on here when, when the Bible, reflecting human history, shows so many terrible kings, so many people who have abused power, so many people who have been in love with power, that they somehow are still willing to call Jesus king? Is this because we actually think that Jesus is going to be like the kings of this earth? Is that what the Bible is saying? No, that's not at all what Scripture is teaching. Scripture wants to say, in fact, that, that in Jesus there's a, a different vision, a, a different way that power and love and servanthood and authority and the way in which it all comes together. And the way that I sort of want to maybe help us sort of remember that is that the kings of this world love power. Jesus comes to show us the power of love. Again, the kings of this world love power. Christ the King shows the power of love. And there's this great sort of picture of these two ways that the world works uh, that we get from Luke's gospel today. And the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, are doing what Roman soldiers do very well. Rome made famous the phrase divide and conquer, right? This is how Rome accrued powers, pit enemies against each other, then take them over, get the resources, and take on bigger foes, right? This is how you win sort of strategy computer games. This is how you win political races, right? This is what you do to other nations to get their citizens and social media to fight each other. It's even what bullies do in middle school and high school and elementary school, right? You divide people, isolate them, take them down one at a time, make them submit. It's what the bully in your office does, right? Again, time and time again, we see this way of life working, of divide and conquer, of a love of power. And what are those soldiers doing? They're literally dividing his clothes that they may mock him. It's just an embodiment there of divide and conquer, separate this one from his followers and then divide his clothing and then mock him. This is what Rome does. This is what power does so often in this world. This is what the false kings do again and again. But at the same time, there's Jesus. And uh, Jesus is the true king, but he's not wearing a crown of gold or of rubies. No, he has a crown of thorns. And the only red is of his blood. And there he is. And in all of the hatred of the world, all this malice, all of it is, is being directed towards him at that point. The whole crowd, people young and old, are mocking him. And at that point, you know, what could have Jesus done with his power? He could have called down thunder and lightning, a flood, some terrible thing, angels. Could have done all sorts of things. But instead, Jesus stretches out his arms and says... Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus here reveals that there's a, another way. That there's another way. It's not just about the love of power, but it's about this power of love, somehow to take into his body all of this pain, all of this suffering, all of this hatred, and to transform it. And again, to take in all the hatred and transform it into love, to take the sin and the suffering and transform it into forgiveness, to take the death and bring about life. Again, this is what Jesus is showing us here, that there's a different way that God intends for power and love to be put together. If you even watch just a little bit of uh, media, 
you will be inundated with all sorts of stories that affirm that, affirm that the way the world works is that people have a love of power. Right? Just, just watch the news. In any, any 24 hours, you will see story after story that, that affirms that this is how humans work then and, and how humans work today. And I think it's really easy for us to grow cynical. Maybe perhaps not as cynical as the one thief on the cross who mocks Jesus, but it is very easy for us to mock and be critical of anyone who would try anything other than actually saying that there's a power of love, that there really is reconciliation and resurrection in this world. So I want to share with you a story uh, this week that I saw where it wasn't about the love of power, but it was about the power of love. And on uh, Friday night, I got to uh, go to something that was really an honor as a pastor because I really had done no work, and I just kind of got to see the end product. For the last year, there's been a group of people in our church that have been mentoring a woman out of homelessness. And, and because of the sensitivity of the situation, we haven't been giving lots of updates on social media or weekly emails to respect this person's privacy as they've been journeying. But uh, there's a group from our church, and they were walking with this woman, again, out of homelessness into sustainability. And, you know, in, in the eyes of, of the powerful, the poor are, are either fodder for prisons or taxes. And this is, again, as a woman who's, again, probably made all sorts of decisions that got this person in trouble. It'd be easy to sort of write this person off. But as Christians, we want to say, no, no. You see, our God is alive, and this means that there's always hope. This means that there is a possibility for reconciliation and transformation and new life. And we, we don't give up on people. And so it turns out that, again, over this year, this woman really has had some really positive changes in her life. It, obviously, it's not a linear thing. There's days that are harder and days that are easier as a person sort of calibrates to a whole new life. But at this graduation, what I got to hear, what I got to see was a very happy and proud person. And I got to see a whole community that had formed around them. But I also got to hear that the director of the program said, um, you've done so well in this program. He, she was speaking to the woman uh, who had sort of journeyed out of homelessness, that, that your landlord wants to partner with us in the future because they've, they've just seen how this can work. And it's just really one of the, again, there's lots of stories we can hear about how people love power and people abuse power and take what's not theirs and use it for their own glory and projects. But as Christians, we want to say, no, there's another story. There's another reality. There's another vision. There's another version for how we as humans can work together. And that's a version that's based on God's love for us. That's a version, that's a vision that says that there is reconciliation. There is healing. There is self-sacrifice. There are people that are genuinely caring about other people. And so today is the day we have First Communions. And so as an Athena, I want you to listen up here. Communion means a lot of things. One of the, the big debates in communion over the centuries has been, is it really Jesus? Is Jesus really present? Or how is Jesus present in the bread? And the Lutheran answer has been maddeningly simple. Jesus Christ is in, with, and under the bread. Oh, there you go. And I'll stand by that. But I think I want to take a step back and just even say, before we get into the mechanics of bread and Jesus and how all this works metaphysically, when we take communion, we're, we're making a statement and, and it, perhaps it's even a political, not a partisan, but it's a statement about this world. And, and what we're saying is that when we take communion, we're saying, this is Jesus Christ broken that I might be whole. This is, this is 
evidence. This is a sign that in this world, there is something more than the love of power. When we take communion, we're saying that God is alive, and therefore there is hope, there is reconciliation, there is forgiveness, there is resurrection. We're just, we're just saying to the world that, that believes so often that God is dead and that the rational response is cynicism and hatred to say, no, there is, there is a power of love that has been unleashed in this world in Jesus Christ. Again, it's our affirmation that, that God has not given up on this world, that God is present and that God is alive. But of course, if we begin to make that claim that there is something called the power of love in this world, it won't take us long to realize that we haven't always lived up to that vision. And that that, that vision that there's a, a, a love of power and the self, that that always seduces us. And that we'll realize that we too need to be restored. We need forgiveness. We need healing. We have ourselves been bullied. And so that we then cry out with the one on the cross next to Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the communion then becomes this grand sign, this word of God to us, that indeed Jesus says, this is all broken and given and shed for you, for yes, indeed, this is a foretaste of a paradise yet to come. Communion, again, has, has many, many layers and many meanings, but I, I want to affirm that today on Christ the King Sunday, we're saying that there's a, we're saying when we take communion, there's a different way the power and love in this world work, and it's not simply about a love of power to get mine so I can have pleasure or more resources. We're saying that fundamentally, no, there is a power of love given to us in Jesus Christ, that, that the resurrection power is, is unleashed in this world, and as we take and eat, that which has been broken and shed for us, we know that all this is also for you and for me and for us. Amen.